figure out my alibi? Take a minute. Here it is. One night, a naked woman burst out of Bob the Appliance Repairman's apartment hysterical. I grabbed my parka and threw it around her. Bob came and got her, but he was so polite he made me suspicious. Too bad I didn't get fully suspicious until a week later, just after naked woman had penetrated his liver with a kitchen knife. One day, the naked woman, now dressed, returned my parka, unaware that blood and other damning evidence stained the backside. I was unaware, too, until savvy cops spotted the blood stain when the parka was hanging on a coat hook near the kitchen. The cops checked out my story, and it made sense. Amanda, hysterical woman, was arrested. End of story. Almost. I'm still a suspect, though not in the conventional sense. My few moments of infamy are currently being reenacted because the producers of Crime Show, a TV documentary program that recreates actual murders, love the blood-stained parka angle. So I'm being thrown in as a red herring. They told me to just act like myself. When I said, how do I do that? They said to just have fun with it. But I'm not sure what they meant. I'm hoping that my status as a murder suspect will enhance my first meeting with Elizabeth. It could jazz things up a bit. Of course, in the same breath, I will tell her that I was cleared long ago, but I'll wait just that extra second before I do in order to make sure I've enchanted her. The larger issue, the one that sends me to the Dictionary of Philosophy, if I had one, is the idea of acting like myself. Where do my hands go when I'm myself? Are they in my pockets? I frankly can't remember. I have a tough time just being myself, you know, at parties and such. I start talking to someone and suddenly I know I am no longer myself, that some other self has taken over. The less active the body, the more active the mind. I had been sitting for days. My mind made this curious excursion into a tangential problem. Let's say my shopping list consists of two items, soy sauce and talcum powder. Soy sauce and talcum powder could not be more dissimilar. Soy, tart and salty. Talc, smooth and silky. Yet soy sauce and talcum powder are both available at the same store, the grocery store. Airplanes and automobiles, however, are similar. Yet if you went to a car lot and said, these are nice, but do you have any airplanes? They would look at you like you're crazy. So, here's my point. This question I'm flipping around, what it means to act like myself, is related to the soy sauce issue. Soy and talc are mutually exclusive. Soy is not talc, and vice versa. I am not someone else. Someone else is not me. Yet, we're available in the same store, the store of existence. This is how I think, which vividly illustrates Mensa's loss. Thinking too much also creates the illusion of causal connections between unrelated events, like the morning the toaster popped up just as a car drove by with Arizona plates. Connection or coincidence? Must the toaster be engaged in order for a car with Arizona plates to come by? The problem, of course, is that I tend to behave as if these connections were real, and if a car drives by with plates from, say, Nebraska, I immediately eyeball the refrigerator to see if its door has swung open. I stay home a lot because I'm flush with cash right now. $600 in the bank, next month's rent already paid. So there's no real need to seek work. Anyway, seeking work is a tad difficult given the poor design of the streets with their prohibitive curbs and driveways that don't quite line up. 
To get to the Rite Aid, the impressively well-stocked drugstore that is an arsenal of everything from candies to camping tents, I must walk a circuitous maze discovered one summer after several weeks of trial and error. More about the Rite Aid later. Oh, God, Zandy, so cute, and what a pharmacist. My grandmother, my angel and savior, sends me envelopes periodically from her homestead with cash or cash equivalents that make my life possible. And quite a homestead she has. Think Tara, squashed and elongated and dipped in adobe. I would love to see her, but a trip to Helmut, Texas would require me to travel by mass transportation, which is on my list of no-nos. Crowds of four or more are just not manageable for me, unless I can create a matrix that links one individual to another by connecting similar shirt patterns. And airplanes, trains, buses, and cars, well, please. I arrived in California 12 years ago when my travel options were still open, but they were quickly closed down due to a series of personal discoveries about enclosed spaces, rubber wheels, and the logic of packing. And there was just no damn way for me to get back home. You might think not going out would make me lonely, but it doesn't. The natural disorder of an apartment building means that sooner or later, everyone, guided by principles of entropy, will inadvertently knock on everyone else's door, which is how I became the wheatgrass guy. After the murder, gossip whipped through our hallways like a fury, and pretty soon everyone was talking to everyone else. Philippa, the smart and perky actress who lives one flight up, gabbed with me while I was half in and half out of my open doorway. She was a suspect, too, for about a split second, because the soon-to-be-dead guy had once offended her in a three-second unwelcome embrace by letting his hand slip lower than it properly should have, and she let everyone know she was upset about it. Philippa told me she was nervous about an upcoming TV audition. I said, let me make you a wheatgrass juice. I wanted to calm her down so she could do her best. She came into my apartment, and I blended a few herbs in a tall glass. Then, as a helpful afterthought, I broke an Inderol in half, which I carried in my pocket pillbox, and mixed it into the drink. Inderol is a heart medication intended to straighten out harmless arrhythmias, which I sometimes get, but has a side effect of leveling out stage fright, too. Well, Philippa reported later that she gave the best audition of her life and got two callbacks. Probably no connection to the Inderol laced drink, but maybe. The point is, she wanted to believe in the wheatgrass juice, and she started coming back for more at regular intervals. She would stop by and take a swig, sit a while, and talk about her actressy things, and then leave for her next audition with a tiny dose of a drug that was blocking her betas. If the moon is out of orbit one inch a year, eventually, somewhere, in a future too distant to imagine, it will spin out of control and smash into, say, India. So comparatively speaking, a half an Inderol in a wheatgrass juice once or twice a week for Philippa is not really a problem. But if I'm to stay in orbit with Philippa, my own prescription count needs to be upped. Easy for me, as all I have to do is exaggerate my condition to the doctor at the free clinic, and more pills are on the way. My real dilemma began one afternoon when Philippa complained that she was not sleeping well. Did I have a juice drink that might help, she asked. I couldn't say no to her because she had grown on me, not in the way of Elizabeth the realtor, who had become an object of desire, but in the way of a nice girl up the stairs whose adventures kept me tuned in like a soap opera. Philippa couldn't see that she was in the charmed part of her life when hope woke her up every day and put her feet into her shoes.
She lived with a solid, but in my view, dimwit guy, who would no doubt soon disappear and be replaced by a sharper banana. I went to the kitchen and blended some orange juice, protein powder, a plum, and a squirt of liquid St. John's wort from the Rite Aid, and then, confidently motivated by poor judgment, I dropped in one quarter of a quaalude. These quaaludes were left over from a college party and had hung out in my kitchen drawer ever since, still in their original package. I didn't even know if they were still potent, but they seemed to work for Philippa, because about ten minutes after she drank my elixir, a dreamy smile came over her face and she relaxed into my easy chair and told me her entire history with the current boyfriend, whose name was Brian. She commented on his hulking, glorious penis, which was at first phrased as, Great Dick, Philippa had begun to slur, and then later, when she began to slur more poetically, was described as a uniform shaft with a slight parenthetical bend. Evidently it had captivated her for months until one day it stopped captivating her. Brian still assumed it was the center of their relationship, and Philippa felt obligated to continue with him because her fixation on his fail-safe penis had drawn him into her nest in the first place. But now this weighty thing remained to be dealt with, though Philippa's interest had begun to flag. The quaalude drink became first a monthly ritual, then bi-weekly, then bi-diurnal, and then I started hiding every night around 11 p.m. when she would knock on my door. My supply of the secret ingredient was getting low, and I was glad, because I was beginning to doubt the morality of the whole enterprise. She did say one night, as she waited for the plum-orange elixir to take effect, that the drink had rekindled her interest in Brian's thing, and that she loved to lie there while he did things to her. In fact, that's the way she liked it now, her eyelids at half-mast and Brian at full. When I started to cut back on the amount of the drug, for reasons of conscience as well as supply, her interest in him waned, and I could tell that Brian was on his way out again. For a while, by varying the dose, I could orchestrate their relationship like a conductor. But when I finally felt bad enough, I cut her off without her ever knowing she'd been on it, and seemingly with no deleterious effects. Somehow, their relationship hung together. Santa Monica, California, where I live, is a perfect town for invalids, homosexuals, show people, and all other formerly peripheral members of society. Average is not the norm here. Here, if you're visiting from Omaha, you stick out like a senorita's ass at the Puerto Rican Day Parade. That's why, when I saw a contest at the Rite Aid drugstore, eight blocks from my house, takes me 47 minutes to get there, asking for a two-page essay on why I am the most average American, I marveled that the promoters actually thought that they might find an average American at this nuthouse by the beach. This cardboard stand carried an ad by its sponsor, Tepperton's Frozen Apple Pies. I grabbed an entry form, and as I hurried home, 35 minutes, a record, began composing the essay in my head. The challenge was not how to present myself as average, but how to make myself likable without lying. I think I'm pretty appealing. But likability in an essay is very different from likability in life. See, I tend to grow on people, and 500 words is just not enough to get someone to like me. I need several years and a ream or two of paper. I knew I had to flatter, overdo, and lay it on thick in order to speed up my likability time frame. 
So I would not like the sniveling patriotic me who wrote my 500 words. I would like a girl with dark roots peeking out through the peroxide who was laughing so hard that Coca-Cola was coming out of her nose. And I guess you would too. But Miss Coca-Cola Nose wouldn't be writing this essay in her Coca-Cola persona. She would straighten up, fix her hair, snap her panties out of her ass, and start typing. I am average because, I wrote, I stand on the seashore here in Santa Monica, and I let the Pacific Ocean touch my toes, and I know I am at the most western edge of our nation, and that I am a descendant of the settlers who came to California as pioneers. And is not every American a pioneer? Does this spirit not reside in each one of us, in every city, in every heart, on every rural road, in every traveler, in every Winnebago, in every American living in every mansion or slum? I am average, I wrote, because the cry of individuality flows confidently through my blood with little attention drawn to itself like the still power of an apple pie sitting in an open window to cool. I hope the Mensa people never see this essay, not because it reeks of my manipulation of a poor company just trying to sell pies, but because, during the 24 hours it took me to write it, I believed so fervently in its every word. Tuesdays and Fridays are big days for me, at least at 2 p.m. At 2 p.m., Clarissa comes. She talks to me for exactly 45 minutes, but she's not a full shrink. She's a student shrink. So officially, she's a visitor and her eyes are green. She brings a little gift bag each time, sometimes with packaged muffins or phone cards, all of which I assume are donated. She asks me how I am and she always remembers something from last time that she can follow up on this time. If I told her that I had planned to call my mother with the new phone card, she remembers to ask how the call went. Problematic for me, because when I say I'm going to call my mother, I am lying, as my mother has been dead, is it six years now? Problematic for her, because Clarissa knows my mother is dead and feels she has to humor me. I know I'm lying and not fooling her, and she thinks I'm crazy and fooling myself. I like this little fib because it connects us at a much deeper level than hello. Clarissa makes several other stops on Tuesdays and Fridays to other psychiatric charity cases, which I'm sure have earned her several school credits. I was, it seems, one of the low men on the totem pole of insanity and therefore the recipient of treatment from a beginner. <laughs> 